Oh, Father God, I just thank you so much that we can boldly come into your presence and you receive us there with mercy and grace beyond what we could ever imagine receiving. I thank you, Lord, that Jesus has been our forerunner and he has paved the way for us to be able to do that. What a, what a privilege it is to sit at your feet and to just bask in your presence and to know no matter how deep our sin is, no matter what our needs are, you, you meet us there. And you give us the resources that we so desperately need to live this life. Father, I, th I thank you for this book. It's, it's been hard. It's challenging. And this week is particularly challenging. And, and I, I know that we're, a lot of us kind of struggle with it. What exactly do these verses mean? But I just rest in assurance that uh, you, you have meant them to be encouraging to us. And so I pray that we would find that full assurance of hope and what you have to say to us this morning, that you would just pour out your Holy Spirit upon me and upon Jim and in this room, and that each of us would walk out of here today feeling hope and encouragement, and that we would feel even more motivated to, to persevere, to press on, to be the men and women that you desire for us to be, to be holy and sanctified, and to live our lives conformed to the image of your Son, and Father, we do pray for the election today. It is a very historic day, and I, I know some people have a lot of fear about, um, about the outcome of this election, and I, I just rest in your sovereignty knowing that you are absolutely in control, that you know the outcome, and it will not surprise you whatever the outcome. And, and I thank you for that. I thank you that we can trust in your sovereign hand and that you have us in it. We just give you all the praise and the glory and the honor, and we thank you in your son's most precious name. Amen. Okay, did I, did I ever tell you all the story of the first time I ever taught this text in Hebrews 6? It was the very first time I ever taught, period. And I got drafted into teaching this controversial passage, and I was nine months pregnant. It was in the 80s, and I had on, some of you older women will recognize this, I had the big tent dress on. It was a denim jumper I had made. You know, we looked like boats back then. And, and, a, red, and a red plaid blouse with a bow tie. You remember those bow ties? And it was, a, it was at night. It was a small group, and there were men and women in there. And I got hot because I was so nervous. So I, I un, un, undid my, my cuffs and kind of rolled my sleeves up, and then I pushed them some more, and then I undid the bow because I was getting hot, and then I really undid the bow, and then I undid my blouse a little bit more. And finally we ended, and we walked out, and there was this man in there, I'll never forget him, Dan Nelson, he's an attorney in Edmond, and he walked up and he goes, I am so glad we finished. I was afraid you were gonna start getting undressed. <laughs> And he goes, I was really concerned. <laughs> but um, it, it was, I remember when I got dry, I said, I can't teach. I can't even teach. And I let alone teach that passage. And, and the leader said, well, you have to. You're the only one that can do it. And I, I will not take no for an answer. So that's what I, this is what I cut my teeth on, was this, this, this difficult warning that has caused a lot of controversy and anxiety and discussion for, for centuries. But we'll see what we can do with it, and, and hopefully Jim will be here soon. He can interject as well. So are you all ready to get started? Okay. 
Well, I think we can start first with the, the part that is known, that is very easy to um, exegete, and that is the contrast that is here in the beginning of these verses. What is the contrast? When, why, why is he doing this? What happened? What had he said at the end of last week that is going to cause him to digress from 5.11 clear to 6.12? He's basically brought up a subject, and then he's going to stop for a little bit and warn and exhort and then come back to it. What did he say at the end of last week that has caused him to do this? Do you remember? He what? They needed to grow up because he wants to talk about a particular subject and they aren't ready to hear it. And what, what is the subject he wants to talk about? Do you don't remember? Go back and look. Go back and look at the end of chapter 5, uh, around verse 10 and 11. He's talking about Jesus' priesthood, isn't he? Didn't you look at that last week, the priesthood of Jesus and how he is a superior priest? to the priesthood of the Old Testament, to the Arianic priesthood and the Aaron. And then he says, Jesus is a priest what? According to the order of Melchizedek. In fact, two times he'd said that in chapter 5. He is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And there you go. You can impress your friends that you can pronounce Melchizedek. Do you know what I mean? And if you ever study Genesis... You can learn how to say Mephibosheth, and then you really sound learned. Do you know what I mean? Um, anyway, a, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and he stops there and he says, about this I have much to say, but, but what's the problem? They're not ready to hear it. Why are they not ready to hear it? What, how does he describe them? They're dull of hearing. And what, what does that mean? Did anybody look it up? Dull of hearing. Sluggish, lazy. That's literally what it means. So he's making a contrast between two groups of believers. And what are they? They are? Okay, so the mature and the immature. And the immature. And the immature, they are, they are dull of hearing, which means they are they're sluggish, they're lazy. What else do you learn about these two groups? Okay, so they, they drink milk. Not solid food, right? Because they're what? Who drinks milk? Babies. Yeah, they're just, they're just a child. They're, they're babies. You know, I just get back from my, grand, my grandbaby. She's a month old tomorrow, and so all she drinks is her mother's milk. That's it. And, and Mylocon drops, which she loves. Those are good. You moms, you know what those are, don't you? She really, with those, she likes them. Um, anyway, they, it's a you're a child. That's all you can have. She, she's not ready for solid food. She's incapable of eating solid food. Plus, it really wouldn't be good for her. But the mature, or how are the mature contrasted? They they eat the solid food, don't they? They're ready for solid food. They're not a child. 
They do. They have, they're able to discern, aren't they? They can discern right from wrong. Which means, if I flip that over, what does it tell me about the immature? They're undiscerning, aren't they? They're not able to discern. Do you see how these lists can go both ways? If what's true about one, the flip side will be over here. So if they're dull of hearing and lazy and sluggish, what would the mature be? Yeah, they're more, they're more responsible. They're not dull of hearing. They have their spiritual ears attuned to hear what God has to say. They're ready to eat and drink and feast upon the word of God. They're ready to do the hard work that is required to grow up. So that, that is indicative of someone who is mature. What else did you see about these two? Okay, they're able to teach. And that doesn't, and you all know, that doesn't necessarily mean able to teach that you've got to stand up like, like I do or like Jim does. It just means you teach the people within your path. We're all teachers. Everybody's a teacher. You teach, you teach who, people who are around you. You teach your, your parents. You teach your children. You teach your grandchildren by the things you say to them, the, by the way you interact with them, by the way why, that they observe how you live your life. You're teaching. You always have opportunities to teach, even if that is not your spiritual gift. You definitely do. Okay. Some other things you observed. Okay. The mature are trained by constant practice. Do you see how that plays into the they're not sluggish, they're not lazy? That tells me that they're, again, that they're willing to do the hard work. What else? Oh, that's interesting. So they have kind of a low standard. I like that, June, of Christian living. Because they're not willing to do the hard work. That's very good. What else is said about the mature? There's a particular phrase that describes them. Did you pick up on it? Look in verse 13. Okay, they're skilled. They, they are unskilled in the word of righteousness. And the mature are skilled. in the word of righteousness. Again, that implication that they are willing to do the hard work. Uh, is there anything else you want to, oh, I would add something else. Read on down, I don't know if you all picked up on this, that tells me something about the mature. Look at the very end of the chapter. You've got to go all the way to the end. When he starts talking about having uh, the assurance of better things for them, 
What does he exhort them to do at the very end? To be imitators of what? Look, be imitators of those who through faith and and patience inherit the promises. What would that be descriptive of? If I'm going to imitate someone, who am I going to imitate? Who? You're going to imitate Christ, but he's, at, he's calling them not only to imitate Christ, but to imitate those who, who are these people? Who am I going to imitate? Who do I look to besides Christ to imitate? The mature. The mature. The mature. So if I'm going to imitate the mature, and these are the mature, they are people that have faith and patience. Do you see what I'm saying? So they demonstrate... Faith and patience in living a life that is also imitating Christ. That kind of goes with what you're saying, Cindy. So, yes, we are to imitate Christ, absolutely. But the scriptures have, there are lots of places where we'll say, imitate these people, live like I do. Look for those people that are mature that display a tremendous amount of fruitfulness in their life and learn from them. Let them teach you. That's why we, have, that's why we disciple people, don't we? Why, why this church pushes discipleship is so that those who are more mature can disciple the less mature to become more mature. So imitate them. There's something else there that shows me maturity as well. In the, at the end of the chapter when he's talking about God, it was, God will not forget your what? Your work that you have, the, your work and your love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And I would just sum that up in one word. They're fruitful. Would you all agree? Do you see how I'm coming up with that? So the mature, they exhibit faith and patience, but they also exhibit fruitfulness in their life in showing love to the brethren in serving the brethren and carrying out the work of Christ in the kingdom of God. So then that brings you to those application questions that are in the lesson. And I I know they're very, very personal, so I don't know if you want to share or not, but if someone wants to, I think that would be awesome. That you examine your own spiritual life. Would you consider yourselves, would you characterize yourself as mature or immature? Are there things in your life that cause you, that contribute to becoming or tempt you to be dull of hearing, to be lazy, to be sluggish? Does anybody want to share? A little too personal, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's really a lot of comfort in kind of having an... what I call a holy unrest of never being quite satisfied with where you are. Um, It's frustrating sometimes. I mean, that's, that's how I live my life. Sometimes I'm frustrated because it seems like I'm never getting there, but then I also take comfort in that, that I'm never satisfied with where I am. And if I get that way for even a day, it's like God then says, well, let's just look at this then. And he opens the door and reveals something very ugly in my life. And just humiliates me back into my place of don't get so smug there, girlfriend, because we've got to work on this now. And I'm thankful for him 
doing that because I want to always be growing and always be moving in a positive direction and not sit still or regress. Anybody else have thoughts? Yes, Lynn. That's a good, and, and what can, when we get that way, Lynn, what can we do? What have we learned in here that we need to do to refocus? What's the title of the course? Consider Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Make him front and center where the other things are kind of on the side, where instead of looking at him filtered through circumstances and events in our lives, we look at our circumstances and events filtered through him. So, and if you're doing that, this election does not cause anxiety because you know that he's in control, regardless of what happens. Well, my husband went to a dinner a couple of weeks ago, and this, one of the speakers, he came home and said this. One of the speakers said, um, well, the good news is one of them's going to lose. <laughs> but the bad news is one of them's going to win. And I said to the audience, just laugh. He goes, oh, they just burst out laughing. I said, that's really kind of the truth. And I would say the really great news is God is in control. He is on the throne. He is not moved. Scepter's in his hand. He is not budged. He is not frazzled at all. He is calm as can be. So that's the really great news, right? Right. Okay. Any other thoughts? Yes, Anita. Okay. That's an excellent book if you all haven't read it. Do you know what she's talking about? Tim Keller has a book called Counterfeit Gods. It's a really good book. It's a small book, so it's a quick read. I have it if anybody wants to borrow it. It's really, it'll convict you, definitely. And he even has a whole chapter. Is it a whole chapter in there? Or he has a good section in there about politics and how that can become our counterfeit God. But he, he'll, in each chapter, somewhere in there, he'll hit you where it hurts and where you're placing your, your faith and trust. Mm -hmm. okay. I, ho I, I firmly believe and trust that everybody in here, in this room, has a, a holy unrest of being unsatisfied with where you are. You wouldn't be here, and you wouldn't be coming back every week and doing the hard work that Jim and I are asking you to do because you really do want to know your Lord and Savior more, and you really do want to glorify him. And so I commend everybody in here for that and even those that weren't able to be here today because I know that's your heart definitely and I know it's your heart exactly what this author says because how does he exhort them what's the exhortation that he gives them after he makes this contrast between these two groups he exhorts them and he says what let us what what June Let's, let's leave this elementary teaching behind. Let's, let's leave it and let's go on to maturity. Let's stop just feeding on the milk and being satisfied there, but let's press on. Now that brings, I put this question in your homework because I think it's a valid question. Why are some people satisfied to just stay immature drinking milk? Have you noticed that? Have you wondered that? Okay, it's easier. Mm -hmm. Are you a teenager? 
Glenda says you're a teenager. I don't think he addresses teenagers in here. Other thoughts? You know, my friend Claudia and I, we've been friends 30-some years. We've had this discussion over and over again over the years and never have a, a definitive answer. Why is it that we see some people just get, they just, they become Christians, they get a hold of the word, and there's no turning back. They're just constantly going forward. I mean, that, I, I'm not saying that to toot my horn, but that's just been my life. It's like God doesn't let me do anything but that. And, but then others just are content to come stay right here. Never, ever, ever going to move beyond that. And I don't, I don't understand that lack of hunger. It's very hard. Changes, even good change is very, very hard. And it takes a lot of work to change. Definitely. Yes, Demery. Yeah. I can do that too. <laughs> And I do understand that because really that's how I am. I know you all probably find that shocking, but it, it really is. And in fact, um, Claudia has also said, well, God gave, I said, I've always wondered why God gave me a gift of teaching. It's just really not natural to me as a person, if you really know me. She goes, well, I know why, because you wouldn't do it any other way. <laughs> and she's right. You know, she recognizes the laziness that I have. And so she, she knows well, if he isn't giving you that, that gift of teaching, you wouldn't dig into the word that way. And it's true. I wouldn't. I really wouldn't. That's just, I'm just being honest with you. But I do, I think, I think you, I think Glenda hit it on the head because it's just, it's easier. Or what Norma said, it's just, I don't want to change. I don't want to upset the balance. I don't want to make the sacrifices necessary to grow. Because if you look at people that are more mature, they have gone through some difficult things in their life. They have made some sacrifices to get there. Or they've given up some things to get there, to, to disengage from the world and to grow into maturity. It's not without the discipleship. That's why we call it the cost of discipleship. You know, take up your cross and follow me. There's a cost involved in following him. But yes, there's a great reward as well. And I think some people just don't want to pay the cost. Do you all agree with that? Yeah. It still mystifies me, though. It still really baffles me. Yes, June. Yeah. Are you willing to do that? Have you read, um, have you heard of Rosaria Butterfield? Um, have anybody, has anybody heard of her? She um, was, uh, what's the name? The, uh, she wrote a book called The Unlikely Convert, but there's more to it. She was a lesbian. She was a professor of, like, lesbian and women's studies at, uh, was it Syracuse? One of the New York universities. She was, like, head of the department. And um, she came to know Christ and, and slowly began to realize this lifestyle is not indicative of, of being a follower of Christ. And it cost her dearly to give that up. She had, I mean, she gave up her position, her job. Um, everything that, to um, stand for Christ. It really was a huge sacrifice. And then she's very, she's written a book and she writes a lot for different um, Christian magazines or for like Gospel Coalition and is kind of on the speaker circuit um, addressing those issues that God does not, this is not an acceptable alternative lifestyle. It is not how God designed men and women and that um, it needs to be abandoned to follow him. 
So she's very sharp. She's very articulate. Um, she um, writes very well. I really enjoyed reading her book. But she's very Presbyterian, too. You have to kind of sift through all that. Rosaria Butterfield. If you just Google her, Rosaria Butterfield, there'll be several articles that'll come up about her. And you might even find a YouTube where she has spoken somewhere and you can listen to her. She's married now and has kids, and, um, but she just has a very, very, very interesting testimony and really has a firm grasp and understanding of what it means to follow Christ. Very steeped in the word. I recommend listening to her. Okay, so I, I would, uh, <clears throat> to move from this section into the next, I would really encourage you, as I, as I did in one of the questions, uh, to find, find those people that exhibit this kind of maturity. I don't care how mature you are, there's somebody probably more mature. Find them. Befriend them. Spend time with them. Pick their brain. Let them disciple you. You know, let them spend time with you and learn from them. Um, and even if you're mature, I guarantee the person that you're discipling, you will learn from them as well. So I, I have several young women I meet with, and I love it. They keep me young, and they teach me things. And they help me be a better mother to my daughter. So um, to be a, a, a godly mother to, to my daughter, because sometimes that mother-daughter thing gets a little complicated. Y'all that have daughters know what I mean, don't you? Okay, are y'all ready to move to the really tough text? Let's do it, shall we? Hebrews 6. 4 through 6. Can I just say, this is one of the most hotly contested passages in Scripture ever. It's caused a lot of anxiety. Um, I'll read you what one um, commentator said I thought was really kind of funny. It's um, Guthrie. And he said, several years ago while attending a professional meeting in San Francisco, two friends and I were, went out for an outing to a popular shopping district in the city. These friends are known authors and teach New Testament at prominent evangelical institutions. As we traveled across the city, we met yet another New Testament professor, a popular writer and speaker, who joined us on a crowded trolley. Somehow we began discussing the warning passages in Hebrews. There, packed like sardines in the mixed crowd of shoppers, tourists, and business people, we carried on an energetic debate about the situation described in Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. Two in our party defended an Armenian position, that is, that a true Christian could lose salvation. One proclaimed those described in 6, 4 through 8 as real Christians who had not lost salvation but were under judgment as the people of God. The fourth member of the debate suggested that the fallen were never true believers in the first place. The scene was somewhat comical. Here were four New Testament professors arguing over the intricacies of Greek grammar and word meetings, surrounded by a crowd, silently staring straight ahead with blank faces, but forced to listen to our theological wrangling. The picture illustrates that scholars are anything but of uniform opinion when it comes to the warnings of Hebrews, and many lay people do not share our enthusiasm for the debate. I thought I just laughed when I read that. I can't even imagine what that looked like and who all those people were, them sitting there having that argument. So if they can't agree on it and we don't agree on it, then that's, that's okay. We'll just agree to, to disagree. Hmm? 
We can agree to disagree, absolutely. But let's see what it really does say, all right? Because you have, um, you have a description of some people here. And how are they described? Let's just list how they're described. How are they described? Okay, they've been once enlightened. What else? What's the next thing? No, before that. Okay, they have tasted of the heavenly gift. What's the next descriptive? Okay, shared in the Holy Spirit. What's next? They've tasted what? Oh, they've tasted again. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Okay. And what? What else have they tasted? The goodness of the Word of God and? And the powers of the age to come. And what's happened? Okay. Then have fallen away. And as a result of their following, falling away, what does the author say about them? It's impossible to what? Okay. So he says, it is impossible to restore them. To what? To restore to repentance. Why? Why can't they be restored to repentance? What does the scripture say? In holding them up to content. So why can't they? Because they're crucifying the Son and holding him in contempt. So that's the description that he puts out there for us right there. Now, these, a couple things that I want to go over is what we really do need to understand before we even begin to talk about what do we think this, we, this means or what it does not mean. And I would write these down so you can really look at them. One, I would say that we all come to it with presuppositions. Do you know what that means? What does it mean? So, somebody said they knew what it meant. What does it mean? If I come to the text with a presupposition, what does that mean? I've already decided certain theological truths, and this is true, therefore anything I read has to fit into that. And I've already decided that, and I'm not going to be, I'm not really going to even consider maybe, maybe I'm wrong. But I have certain theological presuppositions, and you know what? We all have them. And you cannot, I loved what this one author said, to think that we can look at this text without them is really naive. Because we all have them, and we will all look at it, and to totally set them aside is really next to impossible. So already we're we've got a problem in how we're going to interpret it because we all do it. The other thing is I would say this is a genuine 
It's a genuine problem. Because some people want to say that it's hypothetical. One of the views is, well, this is just a hypothetical situation. The author is putting out there a, a hypothetical, but that it really couldn't happen. What, what would be wrong with that? What would be wrong with that view? Well, there would be no warning then. If it can't really happen, then there's no warning. Then why would you even say it? And besides that, the other warnings, there's five warnings. None of them are hypothetical. And the ones that will say this is hypothetical will admit that the other four are not hypothetical. But they want to pick out this one as hypothetical. But if it's hypothetical, it's, it's not a warning. And it's a, it's a genuine problem. It's, it's a real warning. The danger is definitely there. And as Jim wrote in the text, it's, it's a definite danger of something that could happen. It hasn't happened yet, but the risk is real, or he wouldn't be warning them. Do you all see that? Okay. The other is, it's, this is a, that we need to keep in mind, is this is a particular case. Remember, we always want to keep in mind the aim, the author's intended meaning. These were first century Jews who were coming under persecution because of their faith in Christ and were being, um, having the temptation to go back to Judaism to alleviate their difficult circumstances. So that, that, I have to just lay that there as that is what's going on here. And I can't start making assumptions about what this means to me today without looking at that at that particular time. So we're talking about people that are wanting to revert to Judaism. So I have to understand what this meant to the author when he wrote it and to the people that read it when they read it. Okay? The other thing I'd say about this warning is if we think about the letter, what kind of, it's a letter, that's the genre, genre of this letter, but what else is this letter? What did we learn the very first week? Do you remember? It's, it's, say it louder. It's a sermon with what? With exhortation. So in giving this warning, his goal is, I want to prevent this from happening. Does that make sense? So his goal is to prevent this from happening. These are just things to consider before you even attack it, I think. So his, his exhortation, he's exhorting. See, that's the other thing I would say, is he's exhorting Yeah, I got too many letters in there. He is not giving theological instruction. Does that make sense? Do you see the distinction? I'm exhorting you. I have a real warning here because I'm so concerned about you. I see what you're doing. I see how you're slipping. Here's the risk. Here's the danger. And I want to warn you and exhort you, don't do that. Go this direction instead. 
That's my goal and my purpose in saying this to you. I'm not having Theology 101 teaching you some theological construct in saying this. Does that, are y'all clear on that? Okay. Um, something else I would say is that the language is ambiguous. Once enlightened, have tasted, shared in the Holy Spirit. It's, it, it, he, to me, he uses words that sound one way, but I'm not really sure what he meant. It's a little bit ambiguous. He doesn't use words like once we're justified, once we're sanctified. That would be more clear to me exactly who he's talking about. There's some ambiguity there that leaves it open to putting in whatever view you have. Are y'all tracking me? Okay. And the other thing that I think is very clear in this is that once a per person has fully embraced, they have come to a right understanding of God, and they divert from that. There's no other path to repentance. In other words, you cannot come to a right understanding of God apart from Christ. There's no other path but Christ. That's what he's saying in this. There's no other path but through Jesus Christ. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You abandon him, there's no other way to have repentance and peace and right relationship with God. That's true as well. Questions, comments? Anybody? Okay, as you read this, as you read these verses, what thoughts came to your mind? What questions arose as you were reading it? And not the way you yeah. Anything's possible with God. Right. Anything. But while you're denying him, you're crucifying him and showing contempt. There's no repentance. And, and, but but if, if, yes, anything, anybody that wants to repent and embrace Christ, there's always a pathway back. I've always read that, that verse there and thought, well, then which, which means salvation? That, that debate. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, that's where I was going with the situation. Yeah. There's no other path but through Jesus. Just let the words lay there. There's no other path but through him. And if you don't want him, there's no other path. None. Yes, I think that's what he's saying. That's the only way. Yes. Well, what I'm hearing you say, Phyllis, is I can get so mired in sin that I'm dull to Christ. I don't think that's what he's talking about here, okay? Uh, and I'm not quite sure where, to the extent that you're taking that. But I, th I think what he's talking about here is, is a willful, um, I'm just going to reject Christ. I'm going to try to find my peace with God apart from Christ, okay? Does that make sense? Okay.
Other questions that came to mind that you had, what are you struggling with? Yeah, June. Can you talk a little louder? Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, Anita. Um, <coughs> when you hear Oprah Winfrey say on television that there is one way to eternal life, not right now. It's kind of what I would say. No, I mean I don't. Oh, I don't even want to talk about Oprah. But, <laughs> go ahead, Jim. Talk about her. It's very complex. It's, it's because of um, everything else we're bringing to it. Mm -hmm. So I had a really difficult conversation with somebody recently who was describing the situation with one of the kids. And it, the, the problem, it was so far down the road, this problem that they were having with one of their children, mm -hmm. that they asked, what would you do in this way, way, way down the road, trouble, 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 troubled kid? And I love to go all the way back to the beginning and go, well, when they're in junior high, here's what I would have done. And by the way, I have three kids of my own, and it didn't work when I tried it. <laughs> okay? so, but this is where it actually fits together, because it's so often what we try to do is we try to answer the question in this kind of last stage idea instead of realizing, like, how systematic. What I'll do second hour is I'll help you see, like, where you should have come up with the idea that you can't lose your salvation. It's the logical conclusion of four decisions you've already made. Okay? And when you say you can't, it's the logical decision of four decisions you've already made. Mm -hmm. So the reason why we can't let go of the last decision is because we're holding on to four other ones. Mm -hmm. Okay? And that is the part where you really got to go back and you got to say it's, it's bigger than just can or a person, yes or no. I used to just try to answer it yes or no. Mm -hmm. And I had the texts that were yes, and somebody had the texts that were no, and we never got anywhere. Because it was, like, well, I got this verse, 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 well, I got this And we spent a lot of time saying, well, I don't think this verse means that. I don't think this verse means that. Okay? And that's where you've got to step back. Right? Mm -hmm. So I would argue that Hebrews 6 doesn't know who Oprah Winfrey is. <laughs> and if, Hebrew, if Oprah Winfrey was a Jewish person who was being persecuted, who decided to give up Christ and the confession of Christ, to find peace with God the original way, it would tell her, you can't do that, sweetheart. You're in serious trouble of facing the judgment, the eternal condemnation of God, even though you've experienced and you've tasted and you've been enlightened, even though you've done all of those things, God's going to kill you. Eternal, mm -hmm. right? Which is hell. It's an mm -hmm. eternal death. That's what Hebrews 6 would say. And then mm -hmm. I would say, well, Hebrews writer, that's not what she's doing. Um... And then he would go, well, how well do you know Oprah Winfrey? And I would go, well, really not at all. And he'd go, okay, so what are you asking me? Well, I'm asking you to speculate about somebody I'm speculating about. Mm -hmm. Truly. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, I'm not even against it. I'm not even saying, therefore, we shouldn't do it. I'm going, here, here's, here's the reason why you get angry and I get angry. is because when I begin to talk about Oprah Winfrey, you're really talking about your sister. Right? 
And so now all of a sudden it's, well, you don't know. And I'm going, no, 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 it's Oprah Winfrey. Neither of us know. Okay, well, let me, and then all of a sudden we find out, so who are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about my sister. Okay, good. Now, you do know I'm not God. So I can't, I'm not speaking for him in the finality of him. I'm speaking for him to the best of my ability according to the scriptures as I understand them. And I'm willing to even submit to R.T. France and Al Bowler who, and Tom Schreiner who are far more intelligent than I, who I think get this answer wrong mm -hmm. in part because of presuppositions 1, 2, 3, and 4. Okay? And that's where it kind of really plays out. So I would say if Oprah Winfrey, if she has, okay, so we got a lot of these, if she had fully embraced Christ, um, which I don't know if she has. But if she had fully embraced Christ and has now decided to live her wayward way, if she repents and follows Christ, she'll be saved. Yeah. That, the, the scriptures seem too clear about that for me to say no. Right? Mm -hmm. And so that's where I would say, if Oprah Winfrey comes to an enlightened understanding of what's going on, I don't know of a Bible verse that says she can't. Mm -hmm. Is how I personally would answer that question. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That kind of answers yours, Cindy. That's the beauty of it. The beauty of it is this is this is where I think our assurance comes from. Mm -hmm. Our assurance comes from seeing this morning I was in Hebrews 4 with my guys. Um, the assurance comes from seeing the wake of the work and the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Mm -hmm. That's where confidence comes from. Mm -hmm. If you see the wake, if you, it's not the engine, that's the Holy Spirit. Or that's Jesus. But if you see the wake, then that's a sign you're in a boat. Mm -hmm. Right? And that boat is Jesus. Mm -hmm. Beautiful metaphor. Okay? And, and, and the problem is what happens when we, this is what I hate about the you can't lose your salvation speech, that's irresponsible. Not the responsible side, but the irresponsible side. Is they're telling people who are not even in boats, who cannot see a wake, that they're fine. Mm -hmm. That is, I think, I, I think is at best, foolishly damning for their souls. And it's another text, but maybe for yours. Agree. I have four minutes. So I'm just going to... Yes, he's going to do a better job than me. Let me just say, did you look at all these, these cross-references? Did you look them up? Let's just do some other knowns about this, because I think this will address some of what you were concerned about, Phyllis. Look what it says in John. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So I'm not casting you out. He's not casting anybody out here. They're casting themselves out, for one. So I know that's a truism. Um, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. If you go on into Romans, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Philippians, you know, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You see how affirming these verses are if we go through all of these. 1 John 5, I write these things to you that who believe in the, in the uh, name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There's that, that assurance that comes. But then in Matthew, we see there are those that will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? And he says, well, I, I don't even know who you are. You didn't, you didn't carry out my will. Um, if we look at... Um, 
First John 2, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were, they were all not of us. So you begin, you begin to see, well, some can have the appearance. I like what Jim said. We're usually asking these questions because we're thinking about somebody. And we're thinking about, we're trying to make a judgment. We're trying to determine, are they really saved or not? Were they ever really saved or not? Do you all agree with that? And I think, I, and I've, I've totally run out of time, and I think what you have to do is you have to look at all of these things, kind of like what I did here. What I, else I would do is those cross-references, write the known things down. That Jesus isn't going to cast you out. I, when we talk about lose salvation, I hate that phrase. It sounds like somehow I'm going to, I misplaced it, or that I committed one sin too many, and God says, all right, that's it, I'm done. Uh, nowhere does Scripture say that. Nowhere does it say all right, you've committed one sin too many, You're, I'm just done, you've lost it. Never says that. But it does address these people that have had to pretend, I did these things in your name, but you really weren't even mine, or for a while you looked like you had something and then you walked away from it, and it just revealed that you really weren't a part at all. There are scriptures that address that. It does address in Matthew 7 later on what Jim was saying. If you're in the boat, there's a wake. How do we know people? How do we know someone is truly of the Lord? We, judge, we, we look at the fruitfulness in their life. But then I would say that goes back to the maturity piece. Are you even discerning of what real fruit is? Can you even see? Because the parable of the wheat and tares tells me that there are people amongst our midst that look really real. Because there's asked, should we pluck them up? And he goes, no, lest you pluck up some of the, the true wheat. I'll take care of that on judgment day. So, And then at the end, this little parable at the end about the rain, God's blessings fell on both, right? The rain fell on both of the grounds. One produced crops. One produced what? Thorns and thistles and was worthy of being burned up. Judgment. So the blessings came down, but it was the condition of the soil that received that revealed what was truly, really there. But then I would end with, what does the author say? He switches and he gives full assurance, but I am convinced of better things for you. Doesn't he say that? I'm convinced of better things for you. Remember, I, I, I asked you to notice how he calls, these are those, those people, those. And he talks about us and we. He ends it with, we, for God is not unjust, so as to look, overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire that each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I, I think I will just end it by saying this is a complex very complex, like what the little scenario I read you at the beginning, um, set of verses that people disagree on. And remember these things. Remember that some things are just not that clear, and you've got to learn how to eat meat and step back and handle it with what you do know. Go with the known. Put in the pieces of the puzzle that you do know for sure that are true. And sometimes you just got to leave it out there that I don't, I'm not really sure on the other. Does that make sense? I probably didn't answer everybody's questions, and Jim's going to have a lot more to say the second hour. So let's take a break, and we'll give him his full time. Okay, let's take a little bit of a step back. Um, 
And uh, I'm going I'm to do my best. I got, well, two things. I'm preaching for the first time in a while this Sunday, and so I've got a lot of things going through my head. And the good news is, you know, I'm going to kind of come off of my reprieve, so to speak, uh, although it's been a real blessing to, to hear those that have been teaching the last few Sundays do great job doing it. But I decided to come back and pick a real easy topic that how do you get wrong, like divorce. So that's what I'm going to be teaching on, the biblical view of divorce. So it'll be a, it'll be a little bit of an easy one for me. Um, so my, my head's got a lot of things going through it right now. And uh, one of the things that I would, I would like for us to do is going back, and, and, and here's the part that I'm going to just challenge you on individually, is that all of you, all of us, have an opinion about this in terms of the big picture, right? Can a person lose their salvation? And then I point. And you're going to say yes or no. And I, I guess I need you to realize that that, that that statement that you make can't just be hanging independent of your understanding of God, your understanding of the human condition, your understanding of God's eschatological or his end time plan. It cannot be independent upon God and how he sanctifies a believer. It cannot be independent of your understanding of how, not just that he is sovereign, but the outworking of his sovereignty. Okay? And you can't just randomly pick these things. You can't just go, man, I, I really, really like, and then pick two opposite extremes and not recognize that's a little bit weird, that you're an absolutely passionate. I know there's a few of them, but we all look at somebody a little bit crazy when they say, my favorite team is OSU and my second favorite team is OU. Right? Don't we look at them and go, what? How did you come up with that? Like, I know, I mean, it would have to be, right, I went to OU, but now I live at OSU. Or I went to OSU, and now I live in North. We would go, okay, I get that, I guess, right? I understand that. But to just look at somebody, you can't pick those two people and say, you know, my two favorite presidents are Jefferson Davis, which, by the way, he was one of the presidents, but not really accepted by a lot of people. You can't, and Abraham Lincoln, those are my two favorite presidents. Okay, you've got to kind of pick a side on this one. And that is one of the pieces that I would tell you. And yet, how many of us, truly, this, I was guilty of this for a long time, I was just ready to answer this question like it was, do you like sushi? Oh, yeah, love sushi. You like raw fish? Hate it. Okay, but do you like sushi? Love it. You like wasabi? Hate it. You like rice? Hate rice. Okay, so do you like, oh, I love the rolls, but I hate rice, and I hate seaweed. And I hate wasabi, and I hate soy, but I love sushi rolls. Hey, do you know what you're saying? Right? Honestly, but this is, this is one of the problems, okay? Because here is how many of us have been taught theologically, is we've been taught kind of a piecemeal, right? We've, we haven't really been taught, this is God, this is you, this is our condition, this is salvation, this is God's plan, and this is how it works out. We don't, we're not taught that way. We're actually taught very randomly, all over the place. And so none of us have to kind of go, okay, we, we believe in these two contradictory things. This is one of the other places I see it play out in, in, a, in a person's mind, my own. I mean, I'm, I'm complaining about my own brain right now. I believed simultaneously that these seven things had to happen before Jesus could return, and he could return at any moment. Think about that. 
Okay, what do you believe? Well, I believe these seven things have to happen before Jesus Christ returns. Israel has to be a nation for 40 years. The Antichrist has to come. I mean, I used to believe these dumb things. And I had all these, these lists of seven things that have to happen. And they'll take a while to actually get there. And then if you were to say to me, okay, and do you believe Jesus could come back at any moment? Any moment. Literally, look outside. Any moment. Okay, no, no, no. You can't say he can come back at any moment. And these things have to happen. What you have to say is, he could not come back today. Could not. I mean, again, I'm not speaking for him, but my under, you have to pick one or the other. Either you're going to say these things have to happen with certainty, or he could come back any day, or you could go, you could say something like this, I think he could come back any day, and therefore I don't think these things necessarily have to happen. That makes sense, right? Or I, don't, I think these seven things actually have to happen, but I could be wrong, and he could come back any day. I get that. Essentially, you, you didn't get to your conclusion a person can or can't lose their salvation, um, most, most likely. At least I didn't. I'll just confess my own sin. I didn't come to that conclusion by systematically looking at the nature of God, the nature of me, the nature of my condition, the nature of God's plan, the nature of salvation, and where he's ultimately going. I didn't go, oh, and after adding those things up together, I don't believe a person can or cannot be saved, right? That's not how it happened. So I want to I show you a great way of, of, of just walking through how kind of how they got there. And I don't know if this is what you believe. I'm not even asking you to believe any of this. But this, is a great, this is a great system of thought. Basically, what, they, what, what, a, what a, a group of very intelligent, God-believing people believe is they believe in something known as get a new marker. Know where I'm going with this? Total depravity. Okay? Which basically means there is no ability within you, apart from God's work and God's grace, to be saved. There's nothing good that you can do. Taught in its purest form that you can't even accept Jesus if you wanted to. Because actually, no, you can't want to. Because you're how, how depraved are you? Totally. So then who is in charge of salvation? God is. So what does God do? God opens up your heart. How many of you, God opened up your heart? Right? God opened up my heart. And then so how did I, this is their answer. By the way, I'm not asking you to argue with them. I just want you to, uh, Mark Scott, my favorite professor, used to always say, um, don't grade this, just listen. <laughs> don't grade this, just listen. I'm asking you to not grade this. I just want you to listen. Okay? I want you to learn, not argue, learn. Okay? So total depravity essentially says you are totally depraved. Even your decision maker is broken. And therefore, God puts in your heart or in your mind faith, and, and you believe. Now, I know where you're already going. Well, why didn't he do that to my mom? Why didn't he do that to my friends? Their answer? Because he didn't want to? It's God's prerogative. Take it up with him. But in the end, faith itself is an act of God. And there's no, you have no ability to accept him. The reason why you accept him is another answer. But there is nothing you can do, not even accept Jesus, apart from God's work in your life. Okay? That's what they believe. So I'm not asking you to agree with it. I'm saying that is premise one. Okay? Premise number two goes like this. 
God, at the beginning of time, chose people then who would follow him. And it's unconditional. You are elected. Right? You're predestined. Now again, how does this fit? Well, hello, I can't do anything on my own. How am I going to get saved? God chose. So before the world was even made, God in his mind, according to his own prerogative, said, I'm going to take Jim. He's mine. I'm going to put it in his heart to follow me. And he's going to be mine. And I selected him. And I selected Abraham, and I selected Jesus. I didn't select Judas. And I selected Moses, and I selected Peter, and I selected Paul. And I selected Randy, and I didn't select Allison, my sister-in-law. And I didn't select Curtis. Okay? And so those that I elected, they are a part of me, and it is unconditional. It's based on me, my work, what I did. The beauty of this system, as you can already tell, is who's in charge? God. They call it monergistic. The, the gist word is from the Greek word energe, which is where you can hear it, energy, work. Mono, meaning what? One work. Who's working? Who's the monergist in this system? God. Okay? We'll, we'll talk about another way of looking at it, but they believe God is the one because of our total depravity. God before the foundation of the world. So it's not God, God, God didn't go, I know Genevieve and she's just going to be sweet. It's God made Genevieve sweet. Right? Genevieve just did what God told her to do. Can you see the sovereignty in this? Okay, by the way, most of us when we're grading this <laughs> are going, I'm totally cool with the upside of this game. It's the downside that scares me. Correct? Because you're wondering, well, what about my mom? What about my sister? What about my brother? What about my neighbor? What about Hitler? Right? We don't care about Hitler. But we, we literally go through, we go through everything else. But here, here's, what I, well, here's what I love so far. That makes total sense in light of that. Does it not? How many of you are going, that's not making any sense? Now listen, I'm not asking you, can you come up with another way of looking at it? I'm asking, is this system like coherent? Meaning, does it actually fit? Beautiful. Next one. Jesus atones for our sins. Tell me how, tell me how powerful the blood of Jesus is. Right? Does Jesus' blood ever not save? Think about it. When Jesus' blood is applied to the life of us, does it not save us fully? Can I get an amen? Okay. So therefore, did Jesus die for all, or did Jesus die for some? Now, by the way, wait, 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 wait. Jesus' blood fully covers perfectly. So did Jesus die for all, or did Jesus die for some? Because if you say Jesus died for everyone, then what is the next logical conclusion of that? Everyone is saved. It's, called, it's known as, theologically, the efficacy of the blood of Christ. And how many of you go, that makes sense, actually. Right? I get it. If Jesus' blood always does a perfect work, then either there's another way to explain it, which there always is, 
Or, yeah. So if we're totally messed up and we need God to do something, and so God did something and he chose us, apart, apart from his knowledge of us, but by his own predetermined floor, for his glory, I get to choose what I want because I'm God, which, by the way, I grew up in the Church of Christ, and I've always liked that idea that God can do whatever he wants. I mean, it was kind of like I was a Calvinist without the Calvinism. Strong big God, strong sovereignty, strong God sends everybody to hell if he wants to, and I'm okay with it. Okay? So a lot of the system, I don't, I don't get upset about. I like the monergistic. I love God being in charge. You know, there's some texts that kind of get confusing on me, but if we are depraved and God has elected us, therefore, who did God elect? Everybody or just, who did Jesus Christ save? Everybody or just some? Some. So therefore, the blood of Jesus Christ isn't for everybody. It would only be for the elect, those that God chose to be saved from their depravity. Okay? Ibel or Abel? Here is this Abel? It's Ibel? I am terrible on Ibels and Abels. Abels and Abel. Okay, we'll go back to an A. I don't care, really. We could be do we could do this all day long. Irresistible grace. Which essentially just means this that if Jesus Christ has died for you and God Jesus Christ has truly died for you, which means the perfect work is going to happen, and God has elected you from the very beginning, then there's no way that you can deny it. Right? How can you deny if God has if you're depraved and God elected you? and Jesus' blood covered you, then how can you say no to it? Does that make sense? How could you say no to that? Not just, how could you say no to that because Jesus is so loving? No. It's how can you say no to that because you're depraved and God changed your heart? It's a little bit like X is, X is 1 and Y is 2. What is X plus Y? X is 1 and Y is 2. What is X plus Y? You have to answer three. Sorry, I gave you X and Y. You have to say three. You say four, you're not paying attention. Or you're just being stubborn. Okay? It's an unbelievably tight system. So it's irresistible. You, you go, it can't be irresistible. I know people, I do, I know people that hear the gospel and reject it. Okay, then what does that mean? It means they're not elect. They're still depraved. You win the first one all the time no matter what. But you're not elect, and Jesus' blood didn't cover you. So if you've resisted God's grace. Now, by the way, who knows the answer to all of these questions perfectly? There's only one. God. Okay? By the way, I was first taught how to debunk the system before I was ever taught to appreciate it, which I wish I could go back and actually be taught both simultaneously. Its limitations and its stoutness. Okay, I want to give you one last one, and, and by the way, this is fascinating because I just know a lot of people who believe in the last one, and they don't even know how, how we as a church, maybe not Sunnybrook, but how we as a church, meaning um, those that come from the non-Catholic, meaning the Protestant position predominantly, how we got there to the once saved, always saved position, and this is a word I always struggle with too, per, serve, ear, ants. Right? Persev? 
Perseverance. Is that right? Thank you. Perseverance of the saints. See, because what I always did was I argued this one with people who believed in this. You see how stupid it is? I'm sitting down with my good buddy Jonathan Dorst, Presbyterian pastor, and we're arguing about the perseverance of the saints, and I'm arguing that they can persevere, and Jonathan is looking at me like I'm crazy. Why? Because Jonathan believes that X equals 1, and Y equals 2, and Z equals 3, and A equals 4. Right? And this last one then becomes X plus Y plus Z plus A equals. And I go, 46. And he goes, okay, it can't be 46. Okay, give me, the, give, me the, give me the variables again. He goes, X is Y, or X is 1, and Y is 2, and Z is 3, and A is 4. Oh, then the answer has to be 10. Okay, so now that you agree with me, no, that's a better way of explaining what he did. No, that's my, that's my analogy. I, I re, by the way, I really think this is a really powerful way to have, this is kind of a little bit of an aside, is I think this concept is really helpful whenever you're talking to somebody that you don't agree with. Because it usually comes back like Nancy began, or I don't know if you began because I missed the beginning of it, but it's the, it's the presuppositions that get us wrong. And when someone has different presuppositions, no doubt we're going to get a different answer. And all times we argue about answers. So you can sit there and yell, 7, 4, 10, 1. Okay, okay, what's X? And so when people would believe that God would allow homosexuality, or people would believe that, find out their X and Y. And you'll understand they got to that answer most likely very logically. So we want to argue the answer. And I have now decided, no, let's argue the works. So, so why do you believe that God allows homosexuality? Well, number one, God made everybody. Okay, I'm kind of with you there. And, and God really desires more than anything else for us not to be like silly, happy, and flourishing, but fully. I mean, like, I mean this in a good sense, like fully flourishing. Okay, you lost me there. And I believe the Bible really is an antiquated book that doesn't speak to us um, you know, as, as, as exactly as other people. Okay, I'm not with you there. Right? Jen Hatmaker? You guys know who she is? Female pastor that decided to veer off on some particular views. And honestly, the, the part is, I mean, I, I know some people that have been reading her and going, I knew where she was going. I'm going there for a long time. I could see the ex Rob Bell, when Rob Bell decided to quote-unquote jump the ditch, it made total sense to me. You know how I knew Rob Bell was about to jump the ditch? Because he said, most people see theology like bricks, right? These things that are set in stone, like a foundation. And I think theology is more like springs, kind of flexible. Okay, I kind of know where you can go with it. If you see theology like springs, I know where you're going to go with it. If you see theology like a foundation, right? You're going to go in two different directions. So hear me. Watch this. So if you're totally messed up, you can do nothing. So God has elected you, and Jesus died, and his blood is perfect, and you can do nothing but accept it. 
Can you fall away? End of class. Right? Truly, end of class. It's done. By the way, um, this is not a bad way of looking at the Bible, I argue. I, I think it has some serious, okay, but what do you do with, and then what do you do with, and then what do you do with? And, and I don't even think it necessarily totally undoes it. Okay? I don't think it totally undoes it. I just think it's, um, it, 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 I, I'm, I'm speaking for myself, it's too clean. Right? It's too clean. Because I love to ask questions. I think this is, again, when you understand what they really mean by total depravity, they don't mean that you can do nothing good. They don't mean that Genevieve, um, they don't mean, I'll use my grandmother as an example. They don't mean my grandmother could never be nice because she was never saved. They're not arguing that. They're arguing that she can't do anything to merit God's divine favor eternally um, without him, right? So that's what they're talking about. So not when they say totally depraved, they don't mean they only go around and eat babies and kill people and rob banks, and that's not what they're saying. They're talking about you have no ability in yourself, by yourself, okay? So one of the questions that I love to ask people is, like, do you believe in all of these? I'm not saying you, I'm not saying you have to. I'm saying that historically, how the church got here was by looking at, even Augustine did something very similar to this. This was... This was actually, by the way, developed as a response to some Christians in the 1500s, 1600s who began to cast some questions on the kind of Catholic and early reformers' view of Augustine who held to a view of this. And a lot of them went back and said, but how do you explain Hebrews 6? How do you explain um, Galatians 5? How do you explain Revelation 2 and 3? How do you explain the parable of the sower? How do you explain, and they had a list of things, which by the way, they could go back, well, how do you explain John 10? Well, how do you explain Romans 8? Well, how do you explain, right? So we could do this all day long. And so how we actually get here fits within another system. So here, here's what I would actually encourage you to do is I would encourage you, before you just jump on point five and want to argue point five, ask, how does point five affect your other one? Okay? For example, here's one, here's one thought that I, that, I, that I didn't like to think because it really challenged my thinking. Like, does God know, this is where it gets fun, does God know where you're going to spend eternity? Does he? Has Jesus Christ gone, and, I, and this, is, this, this is a little more complicated. I don't think he's actually building me a house. But has Jesus gone to prepare a place for you? So let's run with the metaphor, okay? So um, is today the ninth or the eighth? Dang it. Tomorrow is my spiritual birthday, November 9th, 1980, okay? 36 years. Um, the day that I gave my life to Christ, did Jesus start building me a house? Okay? Let's pretend I believe that I can fall away. So did Jesus start building me a house or not? And the answer we all say is what? Yes. So let's say that next year something bad happens to me and I just refuse and I just, I become as the Bible describes, apostate, fall away, okay, regardless of all those people that tell me I can't. 
I totally decide to embrace the devil, and then I die in a car accident, praising the devil and all of his goodness as I die. Okay? Does Jesus literally go, ugh, and I've just wasted 36 years building a house? Is that what he does? Think how weird that would actually be. So let's say that you're those people who, you know, when you're 12, you accept Jesus Christ because it's a really great week of camp, okay? But then you come back, and it's high school, and you live there. So Jesus starts building when you're 12, quits building when you're 15, right? Starts building again because you went to Youthquake. Then you come home, and you've got a girlfriend, and you make some really bad choices, and so he stops building. But then you kind of get it figured out. Your last Youthquake, he starts building. Freshman year of college, forget it. And he doesn't even come back till you have kids, right? And you decide to start going to church again. And then does he start building again? Like, is it, think about this. Again, even if, it's not, even if it's not a house in its literal sense, is that how you kind of see how God is working? Oh, look, Jim is, Jim isn't, Jim is, Jim isn't, Jim is, Jim isn't, Jim is, Jim isn't. Or if it's not such a back and forth, Jim is, oh, he's not. Just one, just one in and out. Is that what he does? And, and here's where it truly gets complicated, is we are trying to understand and explain this, and I believe the Bible does the same thing, from two perspectives. For those of you that have done our theology program, you know the statement, above the arch. Above the arch are those attributes and those ideas about God that are him in his otherliness, that he does not... He does not communicate them, not to us, but like in us. They're the incommunicable traits of God. Ones that we can only like know of, we can't share with him. So some of his traits, like love, we share with him. Other traits, like his immutable nature, where he does not change, we don't share that with him. Does that make sense? His sovereignty, we don't share that with him. We're not kind of sovereign, right? No, we're subjects. We're servants. So God truly does exist, don't bring up Jesus yet, but God truly does exist, quote unquote, above the arch, okay? Which I don't understand how this works, but even time is a complicated thing to God, right? The Bible tries to explain it like a thousand years is as a day, and a day is like a thousand years, so what is it to God, right? How many of you have wondered why God is waiting? Think about it, how would God wait? But yet the Bible does say he's patient and he waits, okay? But then you have to stop and remember, he waits like God waits. He doesn't wait like you wait, right? Like you wait not knowing, correct? Does he wait not knowing? He waits knowing. So he waits like God. I have to remind myself like that. He just he does things that only God can do. So we live down here, right? We live on the earth. This is the earth. This is where we live. And, and, and where we live, if I can just kind of draw this, like we live in time. Sequence of moments, and God doesn't. I'm trying to understand how the Bible seems to very much talk like this, and then at other times not talk like this at all. That's what I'm trying to figure out. Why does the Bible, see, the Bible seem to talk like this, and other times not talk like this? And this is where I, I, I kind of come back and I'm going, there can really be a helpful process here 
um, and, and even a little bit of, um, well, profound actually, a sense of humility and humbleness in how we speak about things, right? Um, I, I love people who love to throw the God can do anything card, right? You know those people? They just do all that God can do anything. Right? Because people do this. Well, explain to me how. Well, God can do anything. Explain to me how a person, uh, I'll, I'll do this. Well, the Bible says that, you know, a person can, can, can fall away. Well, no, they can't fall away. Well, then I give them a bunch of examples, and they go, well, God can do anything. Okay. Then people can fall away. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the God can do anything card. God can help people fall away. Well, no, he can't. Yes, he can. He can do anything. How many of you believe God can do anything? Yeah, we all believe God can do anything. Okay, so I'm going to use that card. So do you see how foolish that card is? It's like I wanted to tell my wife when, when she would say things like, oh, you always think you're right. And I'm going, are you right when you say that? <laughs> like when you, when, you, when, I, when you say you're always right, are you going, but I think I'm wrong when I say that. Or are you going, I think I'm right. Sure. Sure. So he can let people fall away because that would be for himself. I agree. So here is the thing. Yeah, that's the fun part of that statement. So I tell my wife, hey, listen, like we all think we're right, so let's not use the I'm right card. My wife loved to use for a number of years the but it's how I feel card. I'm like, I like that card. I'm going to start using that card. Honey, I don't think you're doing enough around here. What are you thinking? What do you mean I'm not doing enough around here? Uh, oh, I'm just, I'm just telling you how I feel. Yeah, but I did this. Honey, 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 honey. I don't want to hear facts. I don't want to hear. I'm just, I'm telling you, I feel as though I do all the laundry. And you know what? My wife gets upset. Right? Which, which by the way, here, here's why it's valuable. Is it, does it really matter how I feel? Yes. It matters how I feel. Does it matter that I think I'm right? Yes, it matters. It just doesn't only matter how I feel or that I think I'm right. Right? It's, it's not the only piece to the puzzle. Like, in the midst of it, I know how you feel about this subject. Right? I do. And I know that you think you're right and I'm wrong and everybody else is wrong but you. I know that. Sure. We all are kind of like that. So there must be something else above what we feel and above what we think is right, which I would actually argue is the Word of God. And by the way, I don't think it's going to necessarily solve it for us, where we aren't going to still have questions. The brightest minds go, I don't know if I can fully answer this question. And by the way, I actually think it's a little bit of a good thing that we don't know the final answer to this. I don't think we know that. If you believe in all of these things, I would never want to come underneath, and, and by the way, I really believe, what perspective does this accentuate between the divine and the, and the human? I wonder sometimes, if I had another life, I would love to go back, and, and I just don't have the, the time or even the mental capacity anymore, to wonder how much of our theological conversations are perspectival, meaning they come from a perspective. And I don't mean that like Jim's perspective and, 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 and you know, uh, 
somebody else's person. I don't mean that. I mean literally like it's they're arguing this from the perspective of God. And a lot of what these texts do are describe it this way. Nancy hit upon this. I thought this was a great line that Nancy used. Um, did the text, and let, let's look at a couple of quick ones. I want you to look at John 10. Pull it up again. And hear me, don't put a dog in the fight. I don't care if, as we look at this, I don't care if you believe you can or can't. Like, literally, I really don't care. I don't want to put a dog in the fight. I think you can believe he can or can't. Because literally, it depends on the day and the moment and the perspective. I believe both. Truly. If you were to ask me, do I believe I can lose my salvation? The answer is no. I don't believe I can. So, that's complicated. Okay? If you, were to believe, if you were to ask me, do I believe that people may be able to, I would go, hmm, it's a little bit of a perspective type question. But yeah, the Bible seems to talk about that. So look at this. Look at this text. And I, and I want you to understand the context. Okay? The, again, context matters. Jesus is speaking to disciples who know that they are good, faithful people to Yahweh by the religious establishment around them confirming they are in legal, and right position with Yahweh. We look at it from an American standpoint, which basically does this. I don't care what anybody thinks. I can do what I want. Nobody nobody judges me, right? No one judges me. Nobody evaluates me. Nobody gets to tell me. Is that not true? Who gets to decide whether or not you are or are not saved? You. Who gets to offer commentary on it? Nobody. Right? Isn't that true? Imagine living in a time where that's not true. Imagine living in a time where if I said to you, you are not saved, you believed me. Like, I mean, just believed me. I'm not talking about, I'm, I shook Nelda when I said, you're not saved. I'm not telling I shook her. I'm talking about, like, I broke her with the statement. Because I am God's representative. Who is the representatives of God in Jewish culture? Rabbis, right? The establishment. You didn't have independent Jews just kind of skipping around. I can decide for myself. Didn't you read it? It's in the Constitution. They didn't have that. How do you know you're saved? Rabbi said I was. How do you know you're saved? I'm still involved in the community. What's about to happen to the Jewish people that are Christian? What, what does Jesus say in John's gospel the establishment is going to do? Kick you out of the synagogue. What are the disciples about to embrace? Being labeled wrong and heretic and being right with God. You know that? You ever think about that from their perspective? Imagine that there was one church in town and it was this one. And we looked at Dan and Cindy Barrick and said, you are no longer under God's favor. You must now leave us, and we are pronouncing God's judgment upon you. Get out. You think it would shake them at all? I think it would be devastating. Where else are we going to go? Nowhere. We're the only ones. They wouldn't even, well, we're just going to start our own church. No, that's an American. That's a, actually not even American. That's a Reformation idea. 
I'm going to go start my own church. Martin Luther didn't think he could do that, actually. Martin Luther did not want to start a new church. Couldn't fathom doing that to the Catholic Church. He believed that there was one holy apostolic church. You believe there are many, based upon who's got cool music and children's programming. Okay? But that's, that's your idea. That's not the New Testament. So in the context of if they kick you out, you feel out. Jesus says, my sheep, who are his disciples, hear my voice and I know them. What is this context? It's not an 18-year-old who has forgotten youthquake, but a Jewish person who just has been kicked out of the synagogue. I know them and they follow me. So by the way, if you're asking, what are you going to do? Okay, remember, for those of us that want to go, what do we do with those people who once accepted Jesus and now aren't following him? Well, obviously this text isn't about them. What does it say these people are already doing? They're already following him. Okay? My sheep who know my voice will follow me. So which means, by the way, this system still stands. The really crappy, easy believism, do what you want and you can never lose your salvation, is now out in the cold. The American invention of that is out in the cold. This one still stands, by the way, right? Because this one always believes that you'll always follow. Correct? Do you see how that makes sense? These people, no one strays. No one, how can you stray? Think about it. You can't stray. Follow it. So, they follow me, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Well, duh. Why? Because they're always following me. Who is preaching people who follow Jesus will, be, will, will go astray? Who preaches that? Nobody does. I don't know anybody that preaches people following Jesus are, are lost. No. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Nancy nailed this. What is he promising them? That no one can take you from me. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. Greater than all who? The religious establishment that is now pronouncing condemnation on your life because you've left the faith. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Be very careful taking this verse and then offering comfort to someone who is not following Jesus, to someone who is not obeying Jesus, Right? Do you see how that is a really gross misuse of this text at best? Turn to Romans 8. By the way, I, I'm still cool with, I, I really, I could, I could read that text and go, I totally believe that. That's why nobody can fall away. You, could, you can still believe that. Romans 8. What is this text? Now here's what's fascinating. What if... Not only is it true if you're Jewish, but even if in the rest of the world there is this strong, strong, strong sense of those who are in religious power are rightly defining the in and the out, meaning who's in and who's out. That's always been assumed until, until the, not even the Reformation, until the Enlightenment when humanity was able to rise above any kind of authority. Until the Enlightenment, Nobody knew of a, of a way of just kind of sticking it to the man. No. I mean, we need rules in terms of in and out. Right? You can't just decide on your own. 
The Enlightenment totally changed the location of authority from the establishment to the individual. But before the Enlightenment, I'm not saying there was nobody in the history of the world that thought that, but that was a ground-shaking movement. That's why I don't think you have Reformation without Enlightenment. Right? You, you almost need both of them. Okay? To really flourish. Not, I'm not saying there weren't people that really wrestled with it in the past, but to really flourish, you need an Enlightenment mentality. Okay? So, you have within the other community, the, 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 the Greek and Greco-Roman community, you have priests defining ins and outs. So in the Jewish and in the Greco-Roman community, it's the same thing. It's not the synagogue, but it is the temple cult. And you wouldn't just go, well, I'm part of the cult of Jupiter. I just never go. <laughs> no, no, no. It's like you got to be in America to believe that you can be a part of something you're not a part of. Really, truly. It's, that's an American invention. I'm totally one of them. Do they know who you are? No. You ever been there? No. I'm totally them, though. Okay. Verse 28. And this is the context, by the way. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, <laughs> according to his purpose. This is the election thing. For those whom he foreknew, right? We already talked about this. He predestined for what purpose? To be conformed into the image of his son. Which again, I want to go back and say, so who are we talking about here? People who are being conformed into the image of the Son. So when you ask me about this person that you're saying is falling away, that you're wanting to defend that they can't lose their salvation, I'm going to ask you question number one, if you're going to use Romans 8. Are they being conformed into the image of Jesus? Are you seeing the fruit and the Holy Spirit working in their lives? Are you seeing, right? And, and I've never had anybody go, oh yeah, they're totally following Jesus and loving Jesus. I'm just worried about that maybe they're falling away. I've never had that question. I've always had people who are not being conformed into the image of Jesus wondering if they can still keep their, their, their gift card. That's, that's the question I get. People who are not following Jesus, can I keep my gift card? People who are not being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, can we still keep their gift card? That is the problem I have with the Charles Stanleys of the world. Okay? You're wrong. Okay? Which, by the way, that's not this. This totally believes. They will be conformed into the image of his son. And notice what he says. In order that he might be the firstborn among all the brothers. And those whom he predestined, notice how logical this is, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Right? This is a great text for this. This fits. If he called you, he's going to justify you. Irresistible. And if he justified you, he will glorify you. Will he not? I mean, this text preaches this message. That's why I can't throw this out. There's a lot of this I love. There it is, right there in Romans 8. Now, now notice, notice the switch. Not, 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 the, not the switch. Notice, notice the focus of this, okay? Notice the focus. Verse 31. So then what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? To which... I've heard nobody say, so I get a Mercedes. I never hear that. I, I get, I get a, a speedboat. And I go, well, what do you mean you get a speedboat? It says all things. Hello, it says all things. Hands on the hip. It says all things. Okay, but do you think all, how many of you believe all things means literally all things? You don't believe that, do you? Why? Context. Con context. 
By the way, you're right. So then be very careful just going off of two words and then saying them a lot, like somehow they prove something. Because notice what he goes on to, to say. He will give us all things. I believe that, by the way. In Christ is, what I think, the context, is it not? Now notice. So who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Meaning what? Like, who can condemn me from the outside? Right? That's, that's what it would be. Who would bring a condemnation of the elect? For it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And now he's going to start talking about all those things. And can they separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Context. When these things bad that are happening to us, are they a sign that God is against us? They're a sign that God is, they may be a sign that God is actually for us. Just like the cross was a sign that Jesus was for God and God was for him. So in light of all of these bad things that are happening to you, can you imagine people going, hey, that's why this is happening to you? Especially in the Jewish context. These bad things are happening to you, like in the Old Testament. That's why they're happening to you. And he's saying what? Hey, guys. Don't be gauging your spiritual connectivity to God by these outside circumstances. Because who, who, who can take this from you? Answer? Look, notice how he continues. For as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, when we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, persecution and hardships and difficulties, think of the Hebrew Christians, all of these terrible things that will happen to you. If you persevere which, by the way, the text says quite a bit, if you persevere, then you will be more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I tell you what is the assumed? What is the assumed is that Nelda is clinging to Jesus. That Nelda is clinging to Jesus. And I would tell her, no one can take that from you, right? I would argue that of that no one, the one person that is not mentioned here, by the way, doesn't necessarily prove anything, is Nelda herself. And then you go, well, no, it says no one. Okay, it says all things, right? I, I can't find any example where what Paul is actually describing is the individual themselves turning away. Now, actually, of them, he says, they did this. They did this. Hymenaeus, he did this. Alexander the coppersmith, he did this. That's, what, that's the way it's described. And I believe in Romans 8. I would look at every believer and say, hey, you need to understand this. There is no one that can take you from the Father's hand. I don't care what anybody says. Now that you cling to Jesus and no one can separate you from his love or from his plan. There is nothing in this world that you should fear. Is that not what Romans 8 is saying? So to use Romans 8 as a kind of, tell me how you would get this from Romans 8. Live your life any way that you want and know that ultimately your salvation is sure, but you might lose a few rewards. Show me that from Romans 8. Do you see the problem with it? Reason why? It doesn't exist. Now, by the way, if you wanted to, this is where I finally got a ton of peace. If you want to say, because you believe in this system, which is a very good system, very tight. 
if you want to say that this system just proves, and I'll tell you, I was confused as you were because Jim really looked saved to me too. But the fact that he was not persevering, the fact that he did not follow Jesus at the end of his life, the fact that he was not continuing to be conformed into the image of his son, must mean that we were wrong. Remember, though, that when you talk about salvation, it's not just past, it's also present, and it is also future. And I believe that many of those texts that talk about the surety of salvation are describing it from God's divine perspective to bring us assurance. That God knows you're saved. I believe it. I believe it. And then, I, and then from my perspective, what would I say? So, Tammy, I need you to stay on track. Right? What does God say? Tammy, and especially if he says it, I know you're mine. You're going to get here. Just hold on, sweetheart. What do I say? Hey, Tammy, listen, we're going to persevere. Nothing can take you from Jesus. Yeah, well, I don't want to follow him. Then it doesn't really matter, sweetheart. Here's the good news. You'll just use a flu, lose a few rewards. Find that for me biblically again? Oh, that's right. Dang it, I can't. So there's two ways to explain this. And I really believe is, I don't believe, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm less of an Arminian than I used to be. I'm a little more of a Calvinist than I used to be. This is, this is known as the five points of Calvinism. Have you heard that? I think I'm about a 3.7. And the truth is, this is the, I get one point for this. <laughs> this gets kind of interesting. I mean, I love this. This is what I find the most fascinating. I do believe that Jesus' blood totally saves. But I do believe there's a way in which Jesus' sacrifice can be described as available and yet not applied. I think that's the problem they make with this one is they assume that every place it's available, it's applied. And I believe there's a difference between those two things. So the Bible talks about Jesus dying for all, which universalists then say that's why we're all saved, which I don't believe. But the Bible says it. See how you can get caught in your own logic, so to speak? And that's why it's good to be. I mean, it really is. I'm grateful for those that are real hard line on this. And this is why, in the end, if you believe A plus B plus C, then you're going to end up here. And I believe that what the Hebrew writer is talking, I don't even need to go into it. I knew Nancy was going to nail it. What the Hebrew writer is saying is, hey, don't try to find another way but Jesus. There isn't one. Particularly for you Jewish people, if you want to just go back and think that somehow you can go back to the temple and offer sacrifices, that way is gone. Like it's, it's gone. And all you would do is crucify him all over again, which is what? Think about what the crucifixion was. Wasn't it the Jews going, we don't need you? Like, we don't need you for, amazing, isn't this fascinating? The Jews killed Jesus because they did not need him. And the crucifixion was the means of God demonstrating how much they need him. And the Hebrew writer says what? Should you choose to abandon all of what you know, which I would even argue at this point in the text, it's a hypothetical. I would agree with them. Some commentators would say that. It's a hypothetical. But it's a hypothetical that I believe they need to be aware of, that they need to be clearly aware of. I like what this commentator says, profoundly reformed. Listen to this. So this system, listen to what R.T. France says. I think this is fascinating. So despite well-intentioned, well-intentioned, in spite of well-intentional efforts to square a logical circle, it remains the most natural exegesis 
that the Hebrew writer envisages the possibility of apostasy. And then he goes on to say, but why that can't be true. <laughs> I love that. It's like, hey, RT, thanks for being honest. If you want to try to argue that the Hebrew writer is not worried about apostasy or concerned about apostasy or warning about apostasy, he says the best you can be doing is trying to make a circle into a square. The text will not let you do it, which is why D.A. Carson, a profound reformer, when lecturing through Hebrews, got to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, and said, verse 7, and refused to teach on it. Seriously? Wow. And again, you could say, well, he didn't want to get into the nuance. I, get, I, get, I, 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 I guarantee you DA has an opinion on it. And I would say, I don't, truly, I'm, I'm at the point now where I don't know if I care that much what you believe, as long as you believe something very coherent like this. And if this is where you get, I'm with you. I'm not, I don't even need to try to convince you otherwise. But make sure that before you just run down and pick up a system that it fits with your view of humanity, your view of God's plan, and how that plan works out. That's all I'm asking you to do. And if you can do that, and it's logical and consistent. Okay, please, if you have to leave, that I understand it. But if not, I, I want you to just sit for a moment. Tammy, come here. Tammy.